Could you open your Bible, please, to Romans chapter 8? So last week, Pastor Matthew has unpacked for us the first 13 verses where we learned how we can have victory over sin and not be stuck in the futility and frustration of Romans 7. And his two main points were the new law and the new Lord. And today we're going to consider the new life, okay, which is the central theme from verse 14 through to the end of the chapter. And our particular focus this morning is on our new family identity. So let's pray and then we'll commence. So Father, we thank you uh, that in your grace you have revealed this most spectacular portion of scripture. Uh, may we be struck with awe as we ponder these astonishing truths. Please help our finite minds to comprehend. Uh, please warm our hearts. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now imagine you were born into absolute poverty in a time past. There was no family home. You lived on the streets with your parents. Finding shelter under bridges, you rarely ate, or if you did, it was usually from a trash. Clean water was a luxury. Your clothes were rags. You were frowned upon by society due to your scruffy appearance and hideous stench. The only money was the occasional coin chucked your way by a stranger. Your parents couldn't get work. It was a miserable existence. And there was no chance of this changing for you because education cost money and you had none. You were destined to live on the streets. There was no hope of anything good. But then things got worse. Your parents got sick and they passed away and now you were an orphan on the streets. Derelict, nothing to live for. So you turn to a life of crime. Okay, you steal in order to survive and you get caught. You get imprisoned, a cold, wet, rat-infested cell. But at least there was an occasional meal. You know, one cold morning, the guards come and get you. They load you into a carriage and they take you to a place that you never thought you would get to go. And that was the castle of the king and queen. And you wonder what in the world is going on. And then you are informed that the king and queen have adopted you. You are now part of their family. You are now their child. They embrace you in your filth and welcome you. You now live in the best place in town. You finally have clothes that don't have holes in them. For the first time in your life, you get three meals a day. And how amazing was that first warm meal prepared by the best cooks in town? You finally have a warm bed. You have a roof over your head. You receive the finest education. No opportunity is withheld. And the king and the queen, they love you unconditionally. They're so kind. They're so patient, even as you unlearn your bad ways. And the king ensured that your criminal record was cleared. And you get to enjoy every benefit and every privilege of being a child of the king. Now this is a feeble attempt to illustrate what you and I have experienced as Christians. 
Okay, but the reality for us is infinitely greater because we have been adopted into God's family. We are his children both now and forever. And my friend, that's amazing. And this is the big idea of our text. It unpacks the glorious reality of being in God's family. We're going to spend our time considering this phenomenal reality that slaves to sin are now children of God. I want to do this under two headings. They being the adoption into the family and the adaption for the family. And this will help us to grasp our identity and privileges in Christ. So firstly, adoption into the family. And we see this in verses 14 through to 17. Now what's immediately striking about these four verses is that in each of them, God's people are designated as his children or sons. Can understand the term sons includes daughters. And these verses are stressing that Christians are God's children. We are in his family. And this is true of every single believer. You don't have to reach a certain level before God accepts you into the family. It's true for all Christians. And that is amazing. Because think about it. We, We were enslaved in sin. Okay, Sinners by nature and by choice. We're wicked debauched we were the enemies of God we were rebels but then we've been miraculously saved so we've been freed from the slavery of sin because of Christ and that's astonishing but God didn't stop there he also brought us into his family and this is an extra gift of his grace because theoretically it would have been possible for God to save us but not bring us into his family. But in his infinite grace and goodness, God in his plan of redemption decreed not only to save but also to adopt. And now we are the children of God. Okay, This is our identity. This is who we are in Christ. And the adoption papers have been signed by the blood of Christ. They've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's irrevocable. Every Christian, both now and forever, is a member of God's family. That's exciting. Praise the Lord. Now, when we consider the doctrine of adoption as it's found in the New Testament, it seems that the Apostle Paul had the Roman concept in mind and one commentator offers this helpful insight he says the term adoption may smack somewhat of artificiality in our ears but in the first century AD an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate he was in no way inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature And might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. And what's interesting is that a naturally born heir, according to Roman law, could actually be disinherited. But an adopted heir could not be disinherited according to the law. And this is the concept that Paul has in mind. The concept 
that gave one special dignity, that gave one family membership and all of its affiliated privileges despite not being born into that family. And this is the reality that is true for the believer. We are in God's family. Our previous family ties have been severed. They've been disannulled. And now we enjoy the rights and the privileges of being a child of God. Our life has been changed completely. We, we were that homeless orphan enslaved in sin. But now we're a child of the king. God is our father. He delights in us. He loves us. We possess special dignity and its affiliated blessings. That's amazing. And one privilege of being in a family is that you get to be part of the inheritance. And that's the same with God's family. Verse 17 tells us that we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Okay, so this speaks of an inheritance. A heavenly portion that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. So in other words, God has marvelous treasures to give us. And the phrase joint heirs of Christ stresses that since we are in Christ, it's because of him, we will be blessed abundantly out of the riches of his inheritance. And that's mind-boggling. This is astonishing grace. We can't be sure exactly of what's included. It could well contain the idea of God himself being the inheritance. That, that's a Old Testament concept. But whatever it includes, it's astounding. It's glorious. Okay, so we learn that we are the children of God. We are assured of a great inheritance. And this is all too great for our finite minds to grasp. Okay, but this is who we are in Christ. This is what we have in store for us as God's adopted children. And in light of these wonderful realities, the text offers three assurances that one is a child of God. Okay, this is something that we want to be certain about. And it's possible to possess certainty. So three things that will be true of the child of God. Number one, they will be led by the Spirit. Okay, we see in verse 14 that the child of God will be led by the Spirit. Okay, this doesn't mean that we earn sonship by being led by the Spirit. But rather, this is evidence that we are sons. Or to put it differently, the spirit will not continually lead, okay, that's what the tense of the verb conveys, those who are not part of the family. But the continual leading of the spirit testifies that you are part of God's family. Okay, this verb led, it's in the passive voice, so this is something done to us. But what does this work of the spirit refer to in our text? Now, typically, we associate the leading of the Spirit with guidance or direction, particularly with decision-making. Okay? And that is a role of the Spirit. We ought to be sensitive to His guidance and His inner promptings. But I don't believe that's the primary idea in context. But rather, verse 14 begins with the word for. Okay? That links it back to the previous verse. 
where we find the idea of mortifying the deeds of the body. Okay, this is the specific idea in context that's met by the leading of the Spirit. It's the prompting and strengthening which enable us to defeat the sin in our lives. Okay, so as believers, we actively strive to put sin to death. And this is only possible as we are led by the Spirit. Okay, so the child of God with the Spirit's governance, the Spirit's enabling, will daily do battle with the sinful struggles in their life. As one author described it, okay, the daily, hourly putting to death of the schemings and enterprises of the sinful flesh by means of the Spirit is a matter of being led, directed, impelled, or controlled by the Spirit. Okay, so the Spirit is like the shepherd in Psalm 23, leads us into the paths of righteousness. He's our guide, he's our protector, he's our enabler. And those who are the children of God will experience the convicting work of the Spirit. Okay, this identifies the sin in our lives and will experience victory over sin, which is possible by the enabling of the Spirit. Okay, or to borrow language from Galatians 5, the child of God will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but will produce the fruit of the Spirit. So that describes the general direction of our lives. Okay, sure, it's not perfect, but that is the projection. And this seems to be the idea that Paul has in mind. Okay, the Spirit certainly leads in other ways. Okay, that's true, but that's secondary in this context. But this does form a very succinct answer to the question who is a child of God? Okay, well, a child of God is one who is led by the Spirit. Okay, who is having divinely enabled victory over sin. It's the one who is making spiritual progress enabled by the Spirit. The second thing that will be true of the child of God is an intimate relationship with the Father. Okay, in verse 15, we're told that the children of God have not received the spirit of bondage. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is not about Bondage. It doesn't cause us to fear and tremble in God's presence like when we were unconverted. Okay, the Spirit doesn't produce that, that anxiety and that fear of judgment that we experienced previously. Okay, if you remember, one of the functions of the law is to establish our guilt and to reveal the warranted condemnation. Okay, and hence there's a sense of dread when the natural man contemplates God. But this is removed for the child of God because the Holy Spirit infuses within us a sense of peace, security, and delight in the Father. Okay, this is his role as the spirit of adoption. And there's an obvious comparison employed here using slavery and freedom. So previously we were enslaved. Okay, we were filled with fear of God as the righteous judge, but now we have this freedom and it leads us to consider God as a loving father. Okay, we have the confidence of an intimate and joyful relationship with God. Okay, so the spirit draws us into this intimate communion with the father. So much so that according to the text, we can cry out, Abba, 
Father. Okay, and understand that is an intimate cry. Okay, we, we would translate that as daddy or, or dada. Okay, it's a term of endearment. And understand Jews would never use the term father when they prayed. It was the address that Jesus used when he prayed. In what we call the Lord's Prayer, it begins, Our Father, which art in heaven. In Gethsemane, it begins, Father. So this was Jesus' affectionate address. And it's easy for us to understand that Jesus enjoyed this intimacy and close communion. But remember, we are in him. We are united to Christ, so we too can have this close and intimate fellowship. We can approach the Father. He loves us. He cares for us. There's endearments and intimacy. And the child of God through the Spirit experiences a childlike and joyous assurance of the relationship. You know, it's like my little children. They have great confidence and delight in me because they're not old enough to see all of my flaws. Okay, but they love me. Okay, they smile when I walk into a room. They run to me. They enjoy my presence. They trust me. That's the idea of our relationship with God. But unlike earthly fathers, he will never let us down. He will never disappoint us. So this cry, Abba, Father, is a confident claim of our consciousness of belonging to God. Okay, it's a declaration of us enjoying A closeness with him, grasping that he delights in us, that he loves us. This is the confidence of the one who is a child of God. The Spirit infuses this within us. The third thing that will be true of the child of God is the inner confirming witness of the Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, the wise principle was established that two witnesses were required in order to establish a truth. And it may be this concept that Paul has in mind in verse 16. There are two witnesses within that verify whether one is a child of God. One witness is our innermost being and the other is the Holy Spirit. And the idea being that the spirit powerfully strengthens or increases what our own spirit assures us of being true. So our status as the children of God is confirmed within us by the spirit of God. Now it's true that people can deceive themselves into thinking that they have this inner confirmation. And likewise, Christians can be such a mess and under such attack that they believe the lie that they aren't in the family of God. Nevertheless, the spirit works within. And understand that our God wants us to be certain of our status as his children. He wants us to be confident in our identity as children. And that's why the spirit bears witness. And understand, this is a continuing, this is an ongoing ministry. And this verb, to testify or to give evidence, the same word was used by Paul in Romans chapter 2. He was talking about our conscience. 
Our conscience gives evidence. It causes conviction. And the Spirit confirms and grows our assurance. And my friend, this is why it's so vital to be walking in the Spirit. Because as we walk in the Spirit, this will result in an increased confidence in our adoption. That's why believers in the flesh often struggle with assurance of salvation. But God does not want us to live in doubt. He wants us to possess confidence and assurance of our identity as his children. This is one of the functions of the Spirit. And I trust that you are part of God's family, that, that you know this. Understand that entrance into the family is possible only through Jesus Christ. By by repenting of your sin, by placing your faith and trust in him, believing that he is God and that he died for your sins on the cross and rose again on the third day. The adoption papers must be signed by the blood of Christ in faith. But for those of us who are Christians, we're adopted into God's family. We, We are heirs with Christ, we can enjoy an intimate relationship with God. He's our Father. We are His children. This is our identity. Okay, we, we were destitute, we were depraved, we were enslaved, but now we are the King's children. We enjoy the status and privileges of being in God's family. And yet, the Christian lives in a tension. Theologians refer to it as the already and not yet. There there are some things that we possess. There are some things that we enjoy already, but there are some things that are not yet. We have many glories awaiting us. And yet, in the present, right here, right now, Even as the children of God, we will face difficulties. In fact, a condition of the glories is suffering. That's what the text says. And that's a biblical principle. Suffering before glory. That was Jesus. He suffered before the glory. And we are in him, which means we get the suffering too. All the children of God will suffer for Christ. Being a child of God does not mean that this life will be easy. But whatever we endure, understand for some that that is huge. It's nothing compared to what awaits us. That's what the text says. So the sum total of the challenges of life is but a drop of water compared to the oceans of glory that await us. That's the message of verse 18. All of the sufferings of life are easily outweighed by the eternal glories lavished upon us as the children of God. And so great are the glories that the creation, the Christian, and the comforter are longing for them. And this is what we will unpack in our second point, which I've entitled Adaption for the Family. Okay, God is at work to prepare us for what awaits us as his children. And we see three different groanings in the text 
as the future glories are anticipated, which reveal three different adaptions for family life. Okay, so number one is the groan of creation. You know, an important thing for a family is a home, okay? And a dad must provide that for his children, okay? That's my responsibility as a father. I must provide shelter for my children. And God will provide us with a most spectacular home, okay? Our eternal home is referred to as the new heavens and the new earth in the Bible, Okay, so he will recreate this world into our eternal abode. But in the present, the creation is groaning under the curse and in desire for the coming glory. Okay, we read in verse 20 that the creature, which is referring to the creation exclusive of people, angels, and demons. Okay, so, so the physical world, the earth, was subject to vanity to futility. Creation was subject to suffering, to death, to decay. And notice it says not willingly. So this is not because of some inherent fault in the earth, but rather it's a result of the fall of mankind. Genesis 3 reveals that the created realm was cursed. This was a consequence of the fall So the Lord removed some of his sustaining ministry. Verse 20, when it says, by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. This means it was God that subjected the created realm to the curse. And as a result, the animal world was invaded with fear and violence. The earth, it seems to be against itself and against man. There's floods, droughts, storms, earthquakes, cyclones. There's death and decay. Sure, beauty remains, but it's all tarnished by the impact of sin. The earth is not as productive as it once was. It's slowly winding down. The effects of the curse are everywhere. The physical universe is frustrated and fractured. It's enslaved in a cycle of decay, death, and decomposition. And there's a graphic image employed to explain it in verse 22. The earth is groaning and travailing. And the idea Paul had in mind was that of a lady in childbirth. That's the pain endured by creation. But the beauty with childbirth is that the pain is not meaningless, but carries with it the hope of new life. Okay, so the fact that creation is travailing like a lady giving birth and not like one who is dying, that's very significant because there's hope for new life. Okay, there's a time coming when the created realm will be redeemed from the curse. Okay, that's part of God's work of redemption. And we see in verses 19 and 21, there's a time coming when the created world will have the bondage of corruption removed. Okay, the shackles of the curse will be released. The world will be an Eden-like state again. Okay, and the creation desperately wants to be delivered and brought into this glorified state We see in verse 19, creation is earnestly expecting. This is an anxious and persistent desire. 
It's been explained by, by one author that creation, it's on its tippy toes, stretching the neck in order to get that first glimpse. So creation is longing to be set free. And understand, it was man's sin that dragged creation down, but it will be our glorifying that results in the created realm being redeemed. And it will be what God originally intended it to be forever. And if you're a Christian, this will be our eternal home. Okay, we don't live in heaven where God is presently forever but rather we dwell in the new heaven and the new earth with our father and he will adapt the perfect home for his children. It will be unfathomable beauty, stunning glory. Read the final two chapters of Revelation this afternoon. Okay, we can't fully fathom the glories of our eternal home that will be prepared for us. But in order to enjoy this with our God, we too need to be adapted. And this leads to the second groaning, that of the Christian. You know, we as believers have received many wonderful things in Christ. And yet our salvation remains incomplete in that there is still more to come. Okay, there's this tension between what God has already inaugurated and what he'll consummate in the future. Okay, and in between, in this already and not yet phase, this often causes us much pain. Now, it's vital for us to grasp and believe that what remains to be completed is guaranteed. Okay, we don't need to fear that the work will go unfinished. Okay, God's not like that tradie who starts the project but then never comes back to complete it. But rather, God will complete every project. And according to verse 23, we've been given a guarantee that salvation will be completed. Okay, we're told that we have the first fruit of the Spirit. Okay, this is referencing the Old Testament practice of the first fruits. The first lot of grain that grew would be given to the Lord. And that was a pledge that the full harvest would follow. So the indwelling Holy Spirit is like a down payment that assures us that the work will be completed. Okay, we have God's word. We have this assurance. But we need to understand okay, that although it's true we are adopted now... Okay, there's a sense in which our adoption is incomplete. Hence, verse 23 mentions waiting for the adoption. Okay, what, what does this mean? Well, we're waiting for the adoption because our bodies have not yet been redeemed. And hence, the creation and the believer is groaning in discomfort and discontent. That there's a symphony of sighs because we're still waiting the redemption of our bodies. Verse 23. Okay, this aspect of our salvation is not completed in this life. And hence, we can get frustrated. We can be unsettled because we are aware that we aren't everything that we ought to be. Have you ever felt that? Okay, we can often be very alert to our weaknesses and our frailties. We grasp that we are sinners. We have aches and pains. We suffer from sickness. 
The virus of death is at work in us. Okay, and here's the real tension. We have the spirit within, and that's a taste of what's to come, but we know we aren't there. So the presence of the spirit is a reminder of our incompleteness, and this causes us to groan. But also we understand that there are so many wonderful and spectacular things awaiting us. Okay, my friend, our bodies are going to be redeemed. They're going to be transformed. And this is what verse 24 has in mind when it says we're saved by hope. Okay, this is our great hope. One day our bodies will be glorified. Okay, we will be perfectly adapted to enjoy and function in God's family. And I don't know about you, but that excites me because I look forward to the time when sin no longer tempts me. You know, it frustrates me that I'm tempted by sin. Okay, I look forward to the time when my physical and spiritual shortcomings are no more. When I receive the perfect software update that removes all of my glitches. When my body is equipped to be able to enjoy the ineffable glories that await me. And I'll have the privilege of seeing Jesus. Are you looking forward to that? And then we get to embark on the wonderful journey for all eternity of getting to know Jesus. Okay, and our Father will equip us with the perfect body to enjoy family life for all eternity. Okay, so that's what's awaiting us. And this ought to give us perspective even in the present. Because what we endure right now is just for a short time. And it pales into insignificance compared to what's installed for us. A glorified world with a glorified body with a glorified Jesus. Nothing can beat that. We will be one big happy family for all eternity. But until then, according to verse 25, we need to wait patiently. Okay, this is the attitude of the soldier in the middle of the battle who continues to fight no matter what. That's what we need to do right now. Continue the good fights as we look forward to the redemption of our bodies, which is the full realization of all that we possess in Christ. But our Father doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves as we wait. There's a third adaption for family life, and that's the groaning of the comforter. You know, while we remain in this world and in these bodies, we have to cope with the consequences of the fall. Okay, they are many, they are varying, and we endure suffering while we wait for the future glories. Okay, and this will vary from individual to individual. But in this intermediate time, we're told in verse 26 that we're not alone. Okay, we, we don't have to soldier on and, and muster up enough strength. We, we don't have to be stoics, but rather the Holy Spirit will help us with our infirmities. Our, our loving Father has provided us with the assistance that we need to navigate this life. The verb translated helpeth, it's only used in one other place in the New Testament. And it was when Martha was a busy host. She was serving and cooking and cleaning, but she was a little bit cranky with her sister. Her sister, she, she was being lazy. You know, she sat at the feet of Jesus. She was just soaking up his teaching. 
And Martha said to Jesus, bid her to help me. Okay, the same word translated help. So she wanted practical assistance. So the idea is the Holy Spirit is actively involved, helps bear our infirmities, puts his shoulder underneath them, if you like, infuses us with strength. These infirmities seem best to be understood broadly. It certainly includes our struggles with prayer. That's the next thought in the verse. But infirmity seems best interpreted comprehensively. It encompasses all of our weaknesses. So the Spirit supports us in all of our suffering in its varying shapes and sizes. This is a gift from our loving Father to help us in the present. But furthermore, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He speaks for us, speaks on our behalf. He's like an advocate. And one author described it like so, the Holy Spirit expresses those things we feel but we cannot articulate. The Holy Spirit says those things we want to say but cannot mouth. He identifies with our groans and takes them to the Father on our behalf. You know how marvelous that for we Christians we have two intercessors. Jesus is in heaven interceding for our sin and the Spirit is within interceding on our behalf. And the Spirit's ministry helps us as we live in this tension of the already and not yet, as we await the completion of our adoption. Okay, this is help given to us in the present by our Father as we make our way home. So my friend, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a child of God. You're a member of the heavenly family. This is who you are. This is your identity. God is your father. And I know for those who have had bad earthly fathers, okay, I'm sorry about that. Okay, this may not seem like much to you. It might not excite you that, well, hey, God is my father because it brings up bad images in your mind. But understand, God is the perfect father. He is everything that you wanted in a dad and so much more. He will never neglect his duties. He's never abusive. He won't be absent. In fact, he's infinitely greater than even the best dad. And like good fathers, he loves you. He delights in you. He values you. He cherishes you. He cares for you. He's invested in you. He has time for you. He's training and teaching you. And he will provide for you. The Christian life is a loving and intimate relationship with God. It's the relationship of a child with their father. And may we be like that little child who adores their dad who delights in his attention and affection and wants to please him. Okay, this is the reality in the presence. But we also have so many wondrous things awaiting us. Okay, this is our hope. Okay, we're never without hope. We we have a promised inheritance. We are heirs with Christ. That there's a time coming when, when these bodies will be glorified, completely transformed, free from sin free from all of the effects of sin 
And our father will build us the perfect home and we will be with him and we will enjoy him forever. Our father will right all wrongs. He will wipe away our tears. He will remove all fears and lavish us with abundant blessings for all eternity. We were once slaves to sin. Wretched and wicked, deserving of judgment cowering before God in fear because we understood we deserve his wrath but we've been set free we've been adopted we we have been transformed from slavery to sonship and now now we'll sit on God's knee and enjoy his warm embrace because we are his beloved children both now and forever this is our privileged position because of the work of Christ and this is confirmed in us By the Holy Spirit who whispers to us, Brendan, you are and always will be God's special child. And he says the same thing to you. And may our confidence, assurance and delight in our position and our privileges be increasing. Because we are a child of the King. Amen. Now it's with the hymn, I'm a child of a king that we're going uh, to close.